Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. It is November 20th, 2015, a number of days uh, after the Paris attacks. And perhaps by the time you hear this, there will have been more attacks somewhere. Um, in the wake of these attacks in Paris, there's an increased sense of foreboding, a sense of dread in our Western communities, especially. We know that this is not the last of such attacks and that the randomness of these and the relatively low-tech capability to create carnage means that we cannot assume safety in many of the places in which we are used to assuming safety of some sort. Certainly not in airplanes, but subways, buses, sporting events, theaters, even cafes. You know, my, my friend and I were at the movies the other night at the theater, and there were only about four of us in the in the whole in the whole room, and a, uh, what seemed to be an employee kept going to the front of the of the theater near the screen and messing with some panel there, and he did it about six times. And my friend turned to me and said, "Do you think he's a terrorist?" And I said, "You know, I was wondering that, but um, he's not going to get much bang for his buck." But the point is that. Even in such a kind of, you know, empty theater in a remote little beachy town in winter, that this thought would occur because it's in our awareness. It's the nature of terror. It's that, you know, with just a, a few acts, um, it can have the effect of, of having a lot of people live in fear. We're also living in times of mounting pressures in other ways. Not only terrorism, but the growing and irreversible threats to our ecosystems. Um, Our Earth is heating up, the oceans are heating up, and our very habitat is becoming less hospitable to supporting life, and certainly not in the numbers of the populations uh, of humans that there now are. Along with these mounting pressures, um, there are also huge economic worries, and of course these things are not separate from each other. As the ecosystems fail, the fighting for the scraps will intensify. Uh, A couple of days ago, the headline in the New York Times was, half of the New Yorkers say they are barely or not getting by. And these are people who can still afford in some manner or other even if under extreme financial pressure to live in New York City. So this is not to say uh, nothing of the hundreds of millions worldwide who are now hungry, and many of them are homeless and persecuted as well. So in the face of these pressures and these uncertainties about our future, many people are depressed. There's a sense among those of us who've lived for decades in relative safety and abundance, that the party's over. But life is now and always has been precarious. In other times, humans were no more than one infection away from death, or in the case of women, one childbirth away from death. 
Disease and war were the norm for much of history, and life was generally short, except for the few outliers who lived to ages that we today have come to expect as a given. And yet people through all the ages went on. They created great works of art, they danced, they sang, they studied, and they loved. And that is what we are now called upon to do to carry on as humans have done in the face of adversity for as long as humans have been here, and to carry on with a light in our eyes. I have been thinking lately about an excellent book by Stephen Levine that I read almost 20 years ago. It was called A Year to Live. Now, Stephen Levine, for those of you who don't know, has spent probably... Mm, close to 50 years, uh, working with people who are dying. So he has been by the bedside or on the phone with oh, probably thousands of people as they left this world or as they were about to leave this world. And he himself undertook the project of writing, the, writing a book over the course of a year about, or a kind of what-if book. What if he had just a year to live? How, what, how would that change his daily decisions, his reflections, his commitments to love, his focus on forgiveness and understanding? How would, if you really knew you just had a year to live, how would you spend that time? Because he points out that he sat by the bedsides of many, many people who at the end had regret about how they had spent their time. Or he sat by the bedsides or was involved with a person's last year to live in which they made a lot of changes and veered off the course they had been on and went on to the course that was their truest heart's calling. So he, he spent this year really in this um, sense that it was his last year. And uh, as it didn't turn out to be the case, um, uh, that was really an exercise, but it could have been the case, could have been actually um, a real thing. Fortunately, he is still with us today. He, uh, he says in his book, I have it here, So I committed myself to living a year as though it were my last, to practice dying, to be fully alive, to investigate the dread of and resistance to life and death, to complete my birth before it's over, to investigate that part of myself that refuses to take birth fully, and hops about as though it still had one foot in the womb. To enter the healing I have seen so many times as miraculous growth during a final illness. To place both feet on the ground at last. To live with mercy and awareness in the midst of the consequences of love or the lack thereof. To explore this ground, the ground of being, out of which this impermanent body an ever-changing mind originate, to cut through a lifetime of confusion and forgetfulness, to undertake a life review 
with gratitude and forgiveness, to explore that which holds to its suffering and cultivate a heart that cannot be distracted even by death. This seems to me a good, a good prescription for living any life, not just one that, is, that knows that it's going to die soon, but our daily life. Of course, we have no guarantees how long this is going to be. And we now live, as most people have lived before us in history, in a very precarious way. These are precarious times on a number of fronts. We join the ranks of all those who went before, all those people who carried on, who loved life. And this is one last point I'd like to make. I think it's very, very important to admit how much we love life. We sort of pretend sometimes that we don't and we grumble. But usually it takes very little, a threat, basically a threat to life to see how much we love life. And it's really, I think, good to, to let yourself truly admit that. Be in love with your life. This has been In the Deep with Catherine Ingram. If you'd like to find out more about my work or make a tax-deductible donation in support of these podcasts, please visit katherineingram.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at kathingram for notice of additional podcasts and other musings. Till next time. Ooh.